Hi, it's Heike, and welcome back to the Pursue Your Spark podcast. Today's guest, Shari Barkowitz, is talking all about Pilates, how she got started, how she created her own business, her own studio, the vertical workshop Pilates teacher training, and many more stories related to Pilates and why it's important to think about the modern biomechanics of Pilates and how pizza contributed to her success. So let's dive into today's interview with Shari Berkowitz. I'm Heike Yates, a fitness and nutrition coach with 30 years of experience. I empower empty nester moms over 50 to take back their health and strength to feel vibrant in their second half of life. Right now, you're joined by thousands of empty nester moms around the world who stop dimming their light and instead ignite their spark. On this podcast, I do what I do best, taking complicated information about fitness, nutrition, and mindset strategies, and breaking it down into baby steps that are simple, actionable, and reliable, so you can implement them into your life. I regularly interview some of the most inspiring guests who share their honest stories on how they went from their worst to their best in life so that you know you're not alone in your struggles. Join me as we redefine what aging looks and feels like by taking action and saying, yes, I can. This is the Pursue Your Spark podcast. I am delighted to welcome Shari Barkowitz to our podcast today. She is a Pilates teacher of teachers and a scientist, holding a Master's of Science in Ergonomics and Biomechanics from NYU, New York University. She is the CEO of the Vertical Workshop Pilates Teacher Training Program, where Shari creates Pilates, continuing education products, and tools. And she writes the Pilates teacher blog. Shari's way of teaching Pilates crosses all boundaries by combining science and movement, creating a rich base from where she shares from. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you so much. This is awesome to have you here and we'll dive in a little bit more. But first question, you just became an empty nester as you shared with me recently. How is that going? Wow. Um, it's so uh, it's so unusual. Um, I mean, I, I, <laughs> those of us with children go through this, and so it's not that unusual. But for me, it is. Um, it's going well in the sense that um, I feel I feel as my stepdaughter, I feel she's thriving and um, she's really developing in special ways that one can only hope when they go away from home. Um, and so I'm, I feel very comfortable about her. I feel comfortable that she can reach out to us when she needs help. And that helps calm me down a lot. Um, and for myself, you know, there's this remarkable extra time. <laughs> um, so, uh, so um, that of course is nice, but strange. <laughs> You know, I love to hear that because there's quite a few women that are so sad and so unhappy and feel so lost when the nest is empty and don't know what to do with themselves. So it's good to hear for them that there is a way, there's a light at the end of the tunnel, there is happiness, there is fulfillment. 
Yes, yes, there is. And, and you know, I think I, I know that I have a um, being a stepmother is different than being a full time mother, of course, being a, being a full mother. Um, it has its uh, there's I, I don't want to say pros and cons. I don't mean it like that. But there's 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 advantages and challenges to all of it. Um, but with it, uh, I think for myself, like I started with like knowing that she's thriving and excited and growing makes me feel more comfortable and gives me the permission and to, to explore other things. And, um, and again, not having, not being her full mother, not being her proper mother. Um, I've always been into my other things. Um, it, but with it, yeah, there's, there is life. There's life for all as we all go through these different stages in a family. <laughs> well said. And I like that you addressed that you're a stepmom because that's not something that we've actually talked about on the show. That's, you know, from a perspective for, from a stepmom being an empty nester and a little bit about what that feels like. But so it was fantastic that you shared that. But we're talking Pilates today and we're talking specifically about you. I've been following you for years and we just recently met at the workshop that you were hosting near me. And we both looked at each other and said, oh, I know you. I've been following you. I've been stalking you a little bit because I love I love your approach to Pilates. And you have created an incredible, successful career out of being a Pilates teacher, seeing it in a different way with your background and training. And I remember the first time I saw you was probably when I just was certified about 20 years ago. And I saw you presenting at the Pilates Method Alliance. And quite honestly, I said, who is she? What's she talking about? Pilates is not liked what she's talking about. No, 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 no. So fast forward to after 20 years of teaching Pilates, I'm like, this girl knows exactly what she's talking about. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. No, that says something a lot about, that says a lot about who you are to, um, to be able to first say, this is not for me. And then revisit over time and go, oh, this is for me. I mean, as we grow and develop all of us, um, there are many things that I have been like, not for me. And I'm now like, I'm all about. Um, so thank you. Thanks for giving me a chance over and over again. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm different in the Pilates world. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm a different, I, I think that's a big part of just who I am as a woman. Um, I'm a different kind of person and I revel in my differences and, um, it's not always appealing to everybody. And I have to be okay with that of like, not going to be, I'm not going to be everybody's cup of tea and yeah. um, I have to be my own cup of tea. <laughs> and do you, what I, when we shared our notes and we were preparing for the interview and also when I met you in person, you said, Oh my God, Heike, I got so much to talk about. Should we talk about this? And I'm going to go for this. Cause you said that your foundation for your success sits in being an extremely abused child and adult. And this oh. is something that is not openly available. I, of course, I researched you, I Googled you, I've tried to find as much about you, but there's very little. And, but I wonder if you want to share about that time. Yeah. You know what? I, I, I ought to, it's a huge part of who I am. Um, it's, uh, this would be the first time of me discussing this on anything that's being recorded. Um, so maybe my family will hear this, um, and I'll have to be okay with that. 
Um, and because you know what, you can't protect the people who have hurt you. And that's important. But those of us who have been hurt, we often protect those who hurt us rather than take care of ourselves. Um, so yeah, um, as I just like, sh as I just shared, um, wow, I could feel myself kind of getting flustery inside because this is such a deep thing, but I do, I actually do want to talk about this. And, um, if I feel like I need to stop talking about it, I know that you'll be open to me stopping. So I feel very safe with you. I just should say, um, with that, as I was just saying that I, I'm not going to be everybody's cup of tea and I'm okay with that. And I'm very different. Um, that's not necessarily the thing you feel comfortable growing up with, um, or, or most people from what I gather. Um, I wanted to be part of my family. I wanted to be approved of by my family. Um, yet, um, I was, um, emotionally, uh, tremendously abused by my family. And so, it's a hard thing for a child to come to terms with. And though I've experienced this, I'm not a psych, um, I'm not a psychologist to be able to explain it very well. Um, but I could say that um, when your nervous system is developing, I mean, literally developing, and if you get repeated emotional or physical abuse, mine was emotional, um, your nervous system doesn't develop in a very healthy way. And, uh, and you develop patterns that are not really about taking care of, well, are about survival in a very challenging, um, abusive scenario. And so it really wasn't until recent times that I could appreciate myself as me and my individualism as a good thing instead of I'm such a bad person who deserves punishment um, because I'm different. I'm troubling to some people, um, was troubling to my mother, to my father, to my sister. Um, and so, uh, so it's a very challenging thing to grow up with. And if one is lucky enough, they pursue the healing of it really, really strongly. I'm glad I'm the kind of person who's been pursuing the healing from this that I can now say, wow, I'm different, might not be liked by lots of people, might not be liked and might be treated poorly by people and I don't have to take that. Um, so that comes from a foundation of abuse um, and, a, and a desire to heal from that. What type of abuse, what type of abuse, can you give us an example what, what that may have been like? Um, you know, this is a tricky thing because people do ask these kind of questions and anything that I say is not going to sound particularly, um, bad. Um, so I'm not going to say specifics because when you say specifics, it's, uh, it diminishes the experience. Um, some things were really, really awful and, um, I would rather not share, um, but it diminishes the actual full experience of it to say, um, so what I could say is my parents displayed sadistic, uh, behaviors, meaning things that were, um, dangerous and painful to me emotionally, um, in order to, um, satisfy some 
unresolved trauma of their own. Um, so really, really stupid, awful, horrible things that, uh, that you just would never do to a child. You would never, ever do to a child, let alone an adult. And repeated so much, um, so many different things um, of small little things that build up into a large catastrophic thing. One thing that I can share with you that I think um, would be, no, you know what? I'm not gonna share this right now. I feel not ready to share this. Um, but what I'll say is that so many different things, small and large, that make it uh, impossible to create, for a child to create her own identity, to um, feel safe with your parents. So that's maybe an overall kind of thing is a child should feel really safe with their parents. Yeah. But if a child doesn't feel safe with their parents, um, then where is the sense of self? And where is uh, where is a calmed nervous system to develop? It's not possible. So I have to skate around the details of it because I don't think it's really appropriate for me to share. Good. That's that's it's your story, and I want you to share as much as you feel comfortable with it. Uh, and I, I actually I like your thoughtfulness around that because you're right. Different experiences mean different things to different people. And whatever that has happened to you may blow somebody's mind or somebody would say, oh, yeah, you know, that's not so bad or whatever it is. But in, in your life, it was that traumatic that it actually from what you said, it translated into adulthood. What, what happened there? Did that was that a reflection of your parents behavior, family's behavior, or was it a different person? With that, um, I'm sorry, I don't know that I understand your question. Um, it's, it's like as you were abused as a child and into adulthood, yeah. does it mean that as you grew older that continued or was there another person there? So, um, so, so when you're, so many of us who are abused as children, um, we, the behaviors that you develop to protect yourself from your abusers um, especially when there are parents who are supposed to be saving you and helping you and teaching you, um, you, not just the behaviors, but the ways of thinking and the whole sense of self again, continues on into adulthood because it's literally the way that your nervous system develops. And mm -hmm. so those behaviors continued on. So you make some poor choices, but you can't make any other choices. You make poor choices. So people like myself, we make poor choices in, um, in terms of who our friends are, the things that we might do, who we might date, who we might marry, um, because it's all based on a foundation of what your parents were like, either, either connecting with other people and doing things that were like your abusive childhood because um, that's what's comfortable, um, that's what you're used to, or revolting completely against it. And I certainly made choices that were more like my abusive parents. And, um, and so then it continues a cycle and it's not something that one can consciously get themselves out of. You definitely need help to get oneself out of it. And mm -hmm. so until, um, until I found my, until I found the right kind of therapist, the appropriate diagnosis, which is complex PTSD, and then the right, uh, uh, psychologist for it. Um, even though I was going to a lot of therapy, I couldn't really heal in the way that I needed to. Um, until my actual current, um, my current psychologist. Yeah. Oh my God. I'm glad you found somebody that you can relate to and that can actually help you. Me too. With, 
I've really been pursuing it hard. And so like for anyone who's listening, watching this, I want to say, if you feel, man, you're pursuing so hard your own internal healing and you're not getting what you need, it's or you're not feeling better um, over time and putting in the hard work for it, find yourself a new therapist or a new um, psychologist to go to. Find the next one. Even if yours is good, it might not be the right one. Find somebody else. And I'm glad I kept saying. Yeah. So let's pivot into dance, music, classical. When did Shari become that new glamorous dancer and singer and performer? Tell me. <laughs> um, I started dancing when I was a little girl. Um, I was two and a half. And my cousin, uh, my cousin, Gail, um, who now is my cousin, Tara, uh, as she chose her name, um, she was dancing and uh, I guess my, our, her, our families, you know, were together and my sister was two years old, is two years older than me. And she was, I think, doing gymnastics. And my cousin was like, what do you do, little Sherry? I'm like, oh, no, nothing. I mean, my gosh, I was two and a half. Um, and um, so she gave me her dance shoes. And so then I think it was at three or so I started taking dance lessons and um, the ballet class. And I wanted to do ballet as many little girls do. The ballet class was full already. And the only thing available was tap. So I took tap and um, tap was my first entry into dance. And boy, did I love it. And um, so uh, so at three, I was introduced to dance and started performing. My first performance was probably four. And um, boy, I was really into tap. But then also at three, um, at two and a half, um, um, my sister was in, my sister was like in preschool and I wanted to do whatever my sister was doing. And the school said, um, you know, as long as she's potty trained, she could, she could come. So I started school very early in preschool and there was a piano there. And I um, apparently just like sat down at the piano and started playing Scott Joplin tunes in ragtime tunes, ragtime tunes. Um, and so I got into playing the piano very early. So I was playing the piano and I was dancing and um, I guess I then started singing. And, um, and so I just started performing as a, as a little kid. Um, and I always knew I wanted to pursue a career in musical theater because it turned out to be this little triple threat. A triple threat is somebody who could sing, dance and act. So here I was this little triple threat and um, I had science as my whole other life. I was really into the sciences and through school I was, um, I was very academically oriented, but at the same time I would do school and then spend every afternoon and evening and night dancing, singing, performing. Um, and so, uh, and so ultimately made the choice to first pursue a life, um, a full career in musical theater. And I had a phenomenal musical theater career. And, um, then when I phased out of that, which I'm happy to share about in a moment, um, I went into Pilates, biomechanics and ergonomics. So I got back into my scientific world as well. Um, so there's that overview to answer your first question, but I'll let you ask other questions before I oh, go. Do you know, we're getting exactly where I think we're going. I was like, I'm, I'm prepared for you, girl. Oh, <laughs> uh, so that brings us to how old were you when you had your injury and you were paralyzed or partially paralyzed? So let's segment into that. Yeah. So this is what got me into Pilates was here. I was performing. I was, um, 
I was in North Carolina doing the musical Grease. And, um, and I had a horrible accident in the musical. The man who was supposed to guide me in a turn, um, he violently whipped me and my arm went one way, my head and body went the other way. And I herniated three discs in my neck that were pressing into my spinal canal and into my nerves of my arm. And I was partially paralyzed, meaning I had no use of my left hand and arm into my shoulder girdle, into my neck. Um, so first horrendous pain and then just nothingness, no use, no feeling, no nothing. Um, and I was, I guess I was 27. I think I was 26 or 27 um, in a phenomenal musical theater career. And then it just was stopped. Um, I had to go to physical therapy. I wasn't allowed to work for obvious reasons. Um, I had to go to physical therapy multiple times a week. And um, I ended up, uh, after 11 months of physical therapy, um, I believe is the case. I finally was, um, I had use of my hand and arm again. And, um, and I was allowed to go back to perform a little. And I was allowed to, um, have 30 minutes of Pilates in less 30 minutes, less of physical therapy, 30 minutes of Pilates was given to me. And that started a big transition over time, less physical therapy, more Pilates, and um, and a huge change happens inside of me. Now, I was uh, very surprised that when I read this about you, um, that the physical therapist did Pilates with you. Is that correct? Or did I misunderstand that? Well, you know what this, um, so my physical therapy, uh, the place I went for physical therapy was completely connected with the Pilates studio of New York, um, who was connected <laughs> with, um, which was in business with Ramana who was at Drago's. And so my physical therapist, Joe Tata, he was a Pilates teacher and literally across the hall. And so um, he, indeed, he started teaching me Pilates. And, but he was my physical therapist who then was, uh, was creating my Pilates growth. Yeah. Um, what year was that about, Shari? Because um, Joseph, Joseph Pilates died in 1967. So was that before? Um, no, no, no. Um, my gosh, no, no, no. This was um, so the year that the year that I had this injury was nineteen ninety eight or nine. I don't remember. Okay. I think eight. I think eight. Because I got a, I got a little fuzzy on the dates. I was like, I have you here. I just asked you because I couldn't clarify this in my head. Oh, no, jo Joseph Pilates died in the late 1960s. And no, this was in, um, this was like in, I don't remember the actual year, 1997 or 1998, I think. And um, that makes and, sense. Yes. And I could be so off on that, but I don't think I am. And, um, and with that, um, that's, yeah, that's how I, that's how I got into it. So in my that's 20s. That makes sense. Cause I was thinking of the age and then I couldn't find an age. And then I'm thinking, okay, how old you are? And then I'm trying to do my math back, which I'm terrible at. So I said, I just ask her. I'm glad, I was you like, did. I'm glad you uh, did. Maybe I should know the dates better, but I don't. <laughs> but I was it, in my I was in my like mid-late twenties. Twenties, yeah. Because I thought that was interesting that the physical therapist knew about Pilates. So in my mind, I was thinking, oh wow, how did they know about it back then? But duh. It's me who is always off with the date. Oh, no, you're good. You're but, here. <laughs> thank you. But 
That's so cool. So you did your PT with him. Then you got into the studio, which was next door. Did you start training with Romana? And oh, let me backtrack. Who is Romana? Because not everybody knows who Romana is. And when sometimes I mention it with my clients, people are like, huh? Who? What? They know. They shouldn't know, right? I mean, why would they? So, um, so jo- when Joseph Pilates died, you said 1967, but I always so, thought it was 1968, but I, I'm going to go with you, 1967. And, um, and sure. And, uh, and, then there was a search for um so his uh so claire clara pilates his um his wife um and i'll put it in quotes because there's no there's no marriage contract and such and um so um always a mystery um she was quite elderly and um or i'll say at the time old like old enough and she didn't and she felt elderly that she didn't uh, feel confident about running the studio on her own. And so then became the search of who's going to run the studio. And they went through the gamut of all the people who had been really, uh, at that time, connected to Joseph Pilates and working at the studio or working out or teaching in other places. And um, everybody else was busy with things. And um, it came upon to a, a former student of Joseph Pilates um, they came upon a former student of Joseph Pilates who they asked if um, if she would run the studio. And her name was uh, Romana Krasnowska. Um, Pilates, she, uh, she had done Pilates. She was a ballet dancer and then she became a ballet teacher. She had been uh, out in South America for a long time, had come back. She was looking for work. She needed work. And um, through this and that and a whole series of interesting convoluted things, she ended up running the studio. And um, with... Uh, with Clara and uh, and overseeing all of it and continuing on um, Joseph Pilates' work in New York. Now there were other people all over the place and um, who had been who had worked with Joseph Pilates and had gone off to create their own practices as well or their own studios in different cities and different countries. And um, but Romana Krasnowska was the one who ended up running Joseph Pilates' studio for um, for those reasons. And so. Over time, um, then she created a teacher training program eventually, and um, and that is the one that I studied at, um, or and I studied with Ramana uh, in New York, and um, and there's so much uh, oh infighting, and we don't know how much is real and how much is people's uh, anger and jealousy and to each other. Um, that in one faction of the Pilates world, uh, Ramana was considered like the one you had to study with. Um, and so I'm actually glad that I studied with her because it was her style of Pilates or Joseph Pilates, uh, the, the style that I believed was Joseph Pilates style of Pilates, which it may or may not be completely, um, that I really wanted to study, um, and to learn to be a teacher of, um, yet there's, many different styles of Pilates. And so um, with that, there's a lot of infighting about that. And I just, in this forum right now, I just want to say, study whatever style you feel comfortable with, work with people you like and are nice to, nice to you. And that's the right style for you. But this was the right style for me at the time. Yeah, because yeah. I, I sometimes get clients and they they ask me, who am I certified with? And I said, 
well, I'm not, are you certified with Joseph Pilates? I'm like, uh, uh, I'm not that old yet, but uh, it can't be. And then they're like, well, but there's this New York Pilates and then there's other Pilates. And I'm like, well, is, does it make a difference to you? Who I certified with, I know the exercises, I know my biomechanics, I know kinesiology, I know the exercises, and I learn about your body. And it usually goes, oh, I just wondered because there is this other Pilates. And you put it perfectly. There is Pilates, but everybody evolves a little bit differently and has different takes and different backgrounds on their Pilates. But it should still, in my opinion, it should still resemble Pilates. In my <laughs> In my opinion, too, and I think it's important that we say in our opinion, um, it should still, um, it just, I think like if Joseph Pilates walked into my studio and watched me teaching, I'd love for him to recognize what it is that I'm doing. Right. And yes. you know what? He's been gone a long time. Um, and, um, but that's just for my, for what it is that I do. And when I, as I've looked at all different things and what I feel is most effective, um, I would love for him to walk in and be like, I recognize that. And then I'd also wouldn't, I'd be very happy um, if he were to say, what are you doing there? And why did you say that? And I'd be like, Ooh, let's sit down and talk about this ghost of Mr. Pilates and, um, and have a discussion about why I made these choices or that, um, or this choice or why I'm not doing exactly what he would have done. And it's informed my work. I really inform it with the modern understanding of biomechanics as I'm a biomechanist. And, um, and I hope that we can have a reasonable conversation. Um, but, uh, but I, 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 I personally am interested in it really reflecting, uh, Joseph Pilates actual work from what we could see in films and videos and things like that. Yeah. I remember the times and that's years ago now when people started to add the bozu or the balls, the big balls to the equipment and a large Pilates community was in, <gasps> in shock. And I was thinking, what would have Joseph Pilates done if somebody said, look at this ball? What would you do with it? You know, right. And we can, we can never guess what he would have done. He might have like stuck a needle in it and been like poking and be like, this is crap. Um, or he might have played around with it. And, um, and so I try, to, I try not to put like words into Joseph Pilates' mouth or like he would have done this or he would have done that. I have no idea. Um, I've worked with a lot of his former clients. I've interviewed many of his former clients and, um, and, uh, some say great things about him. Some say horrible things about him. Um, and so, but, um, I, if I were to imagine, um, he was a pretty creative person. And if you gave him a tool to play with, he would play with it. Um, so, but I don't know that any of us need permission from the ghost of Mr. Pilates or anyone to play around with something. Um, from my perspective, I just like to know as much about what Joseph Pilates actually did and be like, oh, this is a Joseph Pilates exercise. And then I want to be able to say, oh, I've adapted this onto the big Swedish ball or, oh, this is my own exercise, or this is, this is Heike's exercise, or this is somebody else's exercise, as opposed to attributing it to Joseph Pilates. But that definitely comes from my origins of, what, of, um, of working with Ramana, of like naming things to be that versus something else. And I don't want to put them separately as good or bad. I just want to put them as, this I know is Joseph Pilates' work, this is Ramana's work, this is Shari's work, this is somebody else's work. Um, but 
why not check out what the ball is and play with the ball? Can't you play with it? Sure. (laughs) Hey, Taiken, I wanted to share something super cool with you. If you've been wondering about trying out Pilates and intermittent fasting, I have the course for you. Have you heard of the Fasted and Fit Over 50 Jumpstart? I created this non-intimidating course for women over 50 and 60 that want to start feeling stronger, healthier, without another diet or exercise program that doesn't fit their lifestyle or health goals. The Fasted and Fit Over 50 Jumpstart is a 14-video self-paced course. This is for you if you are new to Pilates and have never tried intermittent fasting, but you're curious if it's for you. No equipment is needed or any food to buy. Why not jumpstart your health and strength today? Go to HeikeYeats.com and get started. And also, uh, for all the listeners, you uh, we'll leave a link for you in the show notes. Can you, you can read Shari's blog where she has some of the people's interviews and things in there. So it's very interesting. I dug around and read around in your blog and your your uh, website for pre- preparation for this interview. Thank you. So you can find all this. But I always love hearing stories from the Pilates studio. So you've been studying with Romana. Give us some personal insight of what it was like. <laughs> oh, sure. All right. Well, I feel like I should start from my very first day at Romana's studio. So the studio that Romana worked out of was actually called Drago's, which was a Russian gymnastics gym um, or gymnasium. And so you walk in, you get off the, um, so like a 57th street in New York city, you get off the, you go off this building, you get off the elevator and you walk into like a pretty ugly little living room, just like a little living room with a uh, with a kind of blank wall, if I recall, it was a lot of years ago now. And um, and to the right, there's a desk and, oh, an older Russian man sitting there eating yogurt. And that was Drago. At f- first, I was petrified of him. And then I realized, oh, he's a puppy dog. And we became very friendly, as many of us did. Um, and then you go around that blank wall behind the little living room entry area. And it was a circus. And it was craziness. People would be swinging on trapezes and all of these gymnastic mats were laid out all over the place outside of the reformers and other Pilates equipment. And so there were like gymnastic kind of old style Russian gymnastics going on and Pilates. And I thought it was amazing. I thought it was just incredible. I had no idea what to expect because the studio that I had been going to across the hallway from the physical therapy they were just Pilates. It was a very quiet and extremely quiet. There was absolutely not even any laughing, but only the teacher speaking. Yes, in my world, we laugh a lot. And um, and then here we have people swinging around from trapezes, and it was a very vibrant place. Um, so that was my first thing with it. And um, I found that fascinating. And um, the apprentices, we would just sit behind the reformers and around the Cadillacs and chairs, and we would watch Ramana teach, and we would watch different teachers teach, and we would teach each other. And um, and then we had practice clients we would work on, and it was really it was really vibrant. And you had to watch out for people swinging on trapezes that you wouldn't get knocked over. <laughs> and so, as you became her one of her teachers, what was your job? What did did your job become as a teacher? How did you evolve? So, well, so, well. Mm. Huh. First, I should say um, she liked me a lot at the beginning. 
and like a lot, a lot. Little Sherry, she could do anything. I could, you could put my leg anywhere. I could put me in any position. I could do any exercise, great. But then she didn't like me. Um, I have a lot of gumption. I got questions and I want answers. And um, she's my teacher. I, I'm, I'm interested in learning and I have questions. And um, she was very against, or she really couldn't answer questions. And, um, and was really anti, um, anti-answering questions, which is really the opposite of me. And so um, she'd then get frustrated with me and she'd kind of punish me, fight. We'd kind of have fights every day, um, which was really hard because here I am, the student wanting to learn. And we started off this interview talking about my abusive childhood. And then here I was facing it again, um, where now I'm facing a person who's attacking me literally every day. I come in as a child of Pilates, basically saying, teach me open heart, open face, everything. And I'm getting attacked every day. Um, so um, a lot of my education there, my development at first became a very, I had to be on the defense all the time. And like in my childhood, I had to be, I had to feel like I had to prove myself a lot. So I had to be better than anybody else in a sense. I had to make sure I achieved to the highest, which was very much like my childhood. So, uh, and then ultimately I hurt my wrists really badly and I was casted. I had two casts on my arms. And so then she really despised me because she didn't like any injuries in the studio. And now you can't do the advanced exercises. So then you can't teach. And I said, I will teach. And I was really adamant of like, I'll be an even better teacher because I'm casted and I, I have to show for myself and really show her. And it was really, again, very much like my childhood. And, um, and so with that, I did, I achieved exceptionally as a teacher, which made her hate me even more. Um, and, uh, and so when you ask this question, um, I would, I would teach at the studio, um, and then uh, she would leave at like, I forget if it was one or two in the afternoon, like maybe it was one. Oh, I could have the numbers wrong. Anybody who's watching, let me know. And then I would take an hour break, go back up to my apartment and go to the other studio, the one across uh, across from my physical therapy place. And I would teach for four hours up there at that studio. Um, so most of my time with Ramana was observing and teaching and teaching at the studio a little bit, but then just through the morning hours to the early afternoon. And then I would go up to the other studio and teach the entire afternoon until like from until eight o'clock at night there. Wow. Yeah. These are long days, Shari. They were long days. I had, um, I had a national commercial running. Um, I was in a big pizza hut commercial that paid for everything. So I, so that paid me so well that I didn't have to work. So my work, I really invested myself in my training um, that I could, I could just do 40 hour plus uh, weeks of, of being an apprentice. And um, I really invested myself in that. And then that led into indeed teaching jobs. Um, and so I went from there. If that answered your question, which I hope. The pizza, nowhere to be found that you had a pizza commercial running. What were you doing in the pizza commercial? Eating pizza. I don't really even like pizza that much. No offense, but boy, I'm apparently really good at selling pizza. I went from um, I went from doing corporate videos for uh, Domino's to commercials for Papa John's to then commercials for um, for Pizza Hut. I'm the pizza girl. <laughs> I look really good eating it on camera. 
I'll, I'll, well, I believe you. I mean, if they hire you and saying she has the pizza face, who knew, right? Yeah. I really the cheese pull of like cheese pull and what do you do with that and how do you like eat that with a smile on your face? Uh-huh. That is fantastic. I love it. I mean, you have such good stories to tell. I love I it. Because I do have stories. <laughs> So after you ate all the pizza and you started teaching, <laughs> when did you break free is probably not the right word to use, but when did you go out on your own and as, as the vertical, I, I know before that it was not the vertical uh, workshop. There was something before that. Am I remembering it right correctly? I don't know. Um, it might've just been Sherry Berkowitz, um, but um, probably. So what happened was, um, I moved out to, so I'd been in LA in Los Angeles, and then I moved back to New York to do my, um, to do my apprenticeship. And then I moved back to Los Angeles and I was working at multiple studios, um, in Pasadena and in Los Angeles proper. And after a couple of years of working in other people's studios and building up my own personal clientele. So, um, in the Pilates world, as you know, but for your, for your listeners, um, when a studio brings in the client or you come to a studio and you're just coming to that studio, you don't know who you're going to work with, but I want to work at this studio. My studio's name is the vertical workshop. Um, the studio has brought that client in basically by reputation and location. And it's the, you're the studio client, um, and, or the studio's client, but a teacher might bring in their own clients that um, that they met somewhere else. They met over, you know, they met at a party. They met at the park. They are a friend. And so um, very often uh, the situation at the studio might call that person like your client, your personal client and different things at different studios. So I was working at studios and but I was also building up my personal clientele. And so one day it came to the point where I had much more of my own personal clientele and I had really done less and less work for the studios that I was working at. And this one studio I was working at in Los Angeles, I was basically paying rent to the studio that was exceeding the rent that they actually had to pay each month. So I thought, this is now time to open my own studio. And, um, and that's indeed how I did. And it was just two years after um, starting to teach, actually. Yeah. Um, so when did you start, when did you start teaching teachers and go out into the Pilates world to teach us what you know about Pilates and yeah, your I'm, way of teaching Pilates? I had a very strange, uh, big surprise. I had a very strange uh, way of getting into it in the sense that I would not recommend this, um, but it was right for me. Um, with, so I opened my studio two years after my apprenticeship, after I finished my apprenticeship. And with that though, I had already just started teaching teachers. Um, and so I'd only been teaching for two years. That's not a lot of time. It's not something I would really recommend, but I had an unusual understanding of the material and an unusual understanding of how it all worked. And, um, and so I was hired by, um, I was hired by a teacher training company to train, to be a teacher, um, of teachers. Um, and I felt very comfortable with it and felt well prepared for it. I just, it was innate in me, um, to be able to teach it. Uh, other, I, I generally say, my gosh, at least five years, but that was not the case for me. I must be honest. It was not the case for me, but it really was very right. And, um, 
And so then I taught for this company for seven, eight years, seven years, I think, and um, maybe seven and a half. And um, but while that was happening, I was really developing my own understanding. Um, and I taught what I was supposed to teach for them. And but I was really bringing up like there was other stuff that I was really developing for myself. And um, and my company's name and my studio's name was the Vertical Workshop. And then eventually when I created a teacher training program, I took many years off once I resigned from this one company and created my own teacher training program. I took many years off of teaching people to teach, to to become teachers before I had my own teacher training program. What I did in between those times and during the time I was working with that other company was I was teaching workshops, continuing education. And so I had many, many years of teaching, continuing education and developing my style and methodology of teaching before I actually launched my actual teacher training program, if that makes sense. Um, I think a lot of people are very eager to be teachers, train people to teach teach teachers, um, have teacher training programs, and yet at the same time, they don't have a history of teaching teachers. They don't teach continuing education. They haven't created their own methodology. They don't have a sense of themselves in the business and that they have something new to share. Um, And so I feel that that is very uh, shaky ground or not a solid foundation, but I'm very proud of my foundation. I really worked hard uh, to feel that I had something extra and special to say. I have to agree with that. You do have something extra and special to say. That's why I keep following you. I'm like, she's, you know, what I love is, and you mentioned this at the workshop too, is that we can continue to be stuck in the biomechanics that we had in the forties and fifties. That it's time that we're looking at it from a different angle with a different eye. Tell us more about that philosophy. You know what? Science grows and changes all the time, which really makes people uncomfortable. <laughs> you want to, it's really tempting. I just want to be like, isn't the atom the atom? You have a nucleus with uh, protons and neutrons, and then you have electrons that go outside of it, and that's it. Then we found out there's more. There's more. It's not quite like that. There's more. There's more stuff in the nucleus. The electrons are different, and that makes people uncomfortable. They're like, but I want it to be the way I learned it in fourth grade. And, but science, once we, we, we try to learn more all the time in science and ultimately disprove or try to disprove what we said was the evidence in 1950. By 1970, we hope we have a better understanding to stand on those shoulders, whether of the prior stuff, whether it's to discount it or just to add to it or support it. And so in terms of biomechanics, um, that's really, I think that's really important is that's my area of science that in 1970, it was a real big thing to like, actually 1957, a real big thing of stretching is gonna be really important. Stretch, 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 stretch. And stretching tendons is really important. And if you all remember, your tendons are what connect your muscle to your bone. And then, or stretching ligaments is important. That's the stuff that connects your bone to your bone. And you want to stretch all of this, stretch. Well, it turns out that that makes you more flexible. 
but it destabilizes your joints. It makes your muscles not be able to engage as strong, um, as efficiently, I should say. They have to work way too hard and, um, and the joints are then too loose. And ah, so it increased range of motion because you stretch, but you stretch these ligaments and tendons that destabilize the joints and make the muscles inefficient. And it was the best that science had at the time, but we learned from it. And if we don't learn from it, that's a problem. Science wants to learn from what we did in the past. And so now we know that that kind of stretching is not necessarily good for you. And there's other things to do and something called eccentric contractions are important. And, um, and so I firmly believe in standing on the shoulders again of the past and be like, what can I learn from that? Is that still valid information? How can we, how, how have we grown and how can we continue to grow with this information and apply it today rather than being stuck in the past in something that might be useless, dangerous, or just not as useful? And let's find out and keep pursuing that. Yeah, because you talk a lot about biotensegrity and the fascia. Yeah. So tell us more, what, what is biotensegrity for those of us who don't know what that is or even never heard this word and the fascia, what are these things? So hmm, let me think of the best way to begin. All right, good questions. Um, so very uh, a very simple way of us being taught about our bodies, especially when we're kids, is like oh, I'm saying this dorky little thing. It's like the shin bones connect to the thigh bone, the thigh bones connect to the pelvis bone or something like that. And it's very <laughs> linear, very, very linear. And yes, I had to put a Southern twang with it. Um, so, <laughs> um, but a very linear thought of like bone to bone to bone and, uh, and muscles connect to uh, muscles, to ligaments, to bone, and a very linear thought of how we're put together. You know what, here, since, I've got a little skeleton and we look at this little skeleton and you go like, ah, oh, we just place on like band-aids muscles. And then the muscles bend the joints in very linear ways. It's a very simple way of starting to learn about the musculoskeletal system and learn about movement, but it's incomplete. So we would say even that it's not just simple, it's simplistic, it's not complete. It's um, oversimplified, it's not complete. So. And the more and more um, that technology has developed and the more people who question what we've been taught, we start to discover that there seems to be more than just this linear way of bone to bone, shin bone connected to the thigh bone. I'm always saying that. And then there's all this kind of extra tissue and stuff inside of us outside of bone, ligament, tendon, muscle, nerves, fat, skin. What's all this other stuff? And this other stuff is called fascia. And this fascia, oh, there's blood vessels, I didn't mention them. Um, this fascia, um, the, uh, an older understanding of it, a former understanding was it's just packing peanuts inside of you between everything you've got. And some of it is like a wrapping, like a plastic wrap, surround wrap, surround wrap around your muscles and your organs. And that was the understanding at this at one particular time. And then technology advanced to be able to look into this fascia, this soft tissue packing peanuts and plastic wrap like stuff. 
and start to discover this stuff is actually more intricate. There's things going on in this. This stuff does something. Um, there's tubules of fluid, there's transference of force, and instead of it just being linear, bone to bone, muscle to bone, it seems that it's more three-dimensional inside of our body in terms of our structure and our movement. So you've kind of got these like three-dimensional starbursts of support inside of you rather than straight lines of linear movement. And that's basically where the concept of biotensegrity comes in. So in about 1970 to 73, something like that, a man named Stephen Levin, um, an orthopedic surgeon, was curious about when he's doing surgery, things are different than what he had learned. And, um, and you know, I think he was a surgeon. I believe he was a surgeon. But when he was working with people, things were different than what he had learned and what he was expecting. And he started to develop the concept of biotensegrity, which is based on a concept by a man named Buckminster Fuller um, called uh, tensegrity and tensional integrity inside of yourself. Um, sorry, tensional integrity that was sculptural. And then this man, Dr. Levin, Stephen Levin, he started wondering, could it be inside of us? And it's really about this three-dimensional system of soft tissue supporting us, not just and moving us, not just in a linear way, but in a much more uh, expansive, suspenseful way. I hope that that was relatively clear and maybe exciting. <laughs> uh, at least to me, it was. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure my listeners appreciate that because when you think about Pilates, Pilates, you don't think about that. You don't think about, you think about the hundred, you think about the uh, Pilates body or whatever else, but what other ideas can be there around Pilates? Because as we're getting older, our bodies also age and we need to appreciate the aging process that comes with it. Yes. And the, the bodies we've become from our 30s now to our 50s, 60s and beyond. Yes. And so if I might, as I put my teacup down on the ground, um, if I might, the why this concept of biotensegrity would be really useful for your listeners um, and not just for us who love the theory of it all, um, is that if you only think that you are linear, in terms of shin bone connected to the thigh bone and things move on only this linear way, then you will move in a very stiff linear fashion. You'll think of yourself in a very mechanical way as opposed to a very organic way. So if we recognize that we're three-dimensional tissue-filled, fluid-filled, um, and I don't mean just like you're full of like swelling. I mean that like every cell of you, some of us might have some swelling. Um, <laughs> every cell of us are fluid filled cells. And if they all work together in a three-dimensional manner and that you're an organism, not a mechanism, then your movement is different. And that's going to help us in all the years of our lives. The older we get and the more the images that get brought to us of being brittle, of being stiff, of losing our flexibility. And if we buy into those images, then we forget about the reality of it, which is you're still trillions of fluid filled cells that work actually in more of a three dimensional manner and not a stiff linear manner. 
then your movement changes. Your behavior, your feeling of yourself in, um, inside of yourself changes. And if we're stuck with what we were taught 50 years ago, 70 years ago, 80 years ago, that does, that does not match the reality of what we've learned now in the science of the human body. Let's match reality and your behavior will change. That was brilliant. Okay. That was brilliant. That was better than the question that I had for you. Well, I'm glad I, I'm, I'm glad for your question because that my interpretation of it is how is that? Yeah. Yeah, because we are also made to believe that we are brittle, that we, you know, if we have osteoporosis, we shouldn't do a bazillion things. And uh, what ends up happening is people become stiffer and more linear and afraid of movement rather than embracing movement that is can be pain-free. Yes, indeed, indeed. And I, I, as you know from my workshops, I mean, I'm happy to share with your listeners that if we remember ourselves or consider ourselves in the reality that we are animals and we are not mechanisms, we are animals. We can look out the window and look at that, look at that squirrel. Look at the older squirrel. That older squirrel is doing just great. It might only have three paws and it's doing great. It's still spiraling itself up the tree. And so can we. I mean, I'm not going up the tree, but <laughs> we are organisms, we are animals. And for us to not buy into um, the, the limits uh, the, the ones that are unreasonable for us, there are reasonable ones, but we don't have to buy into the ones that are really fallacies. Yeah. Now I have two more questions for you and they're all actually questions that I want to know about. Okay. Number one is, how, and there's many stories about this. So that's why I'm asking you, how did the Pilates names get their names? Oh, you mean the exercises? The exercises. Yeah. I mean, as far as I know, okay. Most of them are really just um, are really just very straightforward footwork. You're working with your feet. I mean, maybe it could be called leg and footwork, um, single leg stretch. Oh, we're stretching one leg at a time. Double leg stretch, very straightforward, nothing fancy. But then you get to some things like elephant on the reformer. Why isn't that just called the like lean over and press your legs out? exercise, um, which would be much more typical for Joseph Pilates exercises. There's an exercise called going up front on what on the wounded chair or the high chair. And well, because you're going up front ways, but we get to the creative aims. And those from my from what I've heard were from clients, um, oftentimes like clients giving the exercise a name. Um, or um, so elephant uh, I believe it was that uh, a lady didn't like how her uh, how her skin was on her legs and um, on her upper thighs. And she called it elephant skin, I think, is the story I heard. And so she thought the elephant exercise would work on her elephant skin. Um, and so um, so I, that's the story I had heard, whether it's the true story or not. I have no idea. Um, uh, so the ones that have like creative names. Uh, <laughs> We're usually by the clients. Joseph Pilates wasn't creative in that way. He was creative in lots of other ways. Um, so, Because <laughs> the story I heard, I had heard, was that the teachers named the exercises to remember them. That's what I had heard. You know what? Maybe so. Maybe so. The thing about, the thing about Pilates, the Pilates world, is there's lots of stories with not necessarily really great factual answers. Um, and Which is great. They're, that's why they're stories. Totally. 
And so, you know what? Great. Probably, I, I wouldn't doubt that some, some of the exercises were absolutely the teachers just trying to find, remember how to, what to do. Oh, this one looked like an elephant. Yeah. <laughs> no. And finally, what is your favorite Pilates exercise? Gosh. You um, can only pick one. <laughs> I'm so Sherry. The entire method. Um, <laughs> The whole method is one exercise. I, I don't. I don't know. Oh, I'm so pathetic. I don't know that I have one. Um, one exercise. If I had to pick one. If I had to pick one. The mountain climb on the chair with the whole rolling your spine up and rolling your spine down. Eight sets or four sets of eight pumping those legs roll up and down with your spine. Next leg. Yes. Why you might ask. <laughs> Please do share. It's hard. It's a hard exercise. And the learning of it, the practicing it of it, the refining it, the like losing it and coming back to it, the and all of that is such an amazing challenge. And the feeling of success internally of working on something and getting or and, and feeling a sense of achievement. Um, Challenge and achievement is really satisfying to me. I love that. Yeah. Well, Sherry, it was a pleasure having you here on the Pursue Your Spark podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad to be here with you and everyone. Great. Thank you for joining me today in today's interview all about Pilates with my guest, Sherry Barkowitz. If you'd like to learn more about Sherry, please check out her social media channels. We provided links to those in the show notes captions. In addition, check out the Pilates teacher blog on Sherry's website. And again, the link will be in the show note captions. And if you're learning from and you're enjoying our podcast, please subscribe to our YouTube channel. That is a zero cost way to support us. In addition, please subscribe to the Pursue Your Spark podcast on Apple and Spotify and give the show up to five star review. If you have any questions or comments or topics or guests you'd like me to cover on the Pursue Your Spark podcast, please put them in the comment section on YouTube. I read all the comments and I respond there. If you're not already following us on social media, we are at Ike. It's on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and TikTok. And I should mention that on those platforms, I cover fitness, Pilates, strength, intermittent fasting topics for empty nester moms over 50, 60, and beyond, which overlap with the Pursue Your Spark podcast. Get on the list for my weekly newsletter by grabbing one of my free guides for empty nester moms to reclaim your health by going to heikeyates.com. Thank you for joining me in today's interview with Sherry Berkowitz, all about Pilates.